You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up today, details about a fund to help women entrepreneurs. We also learn more about Skills Ontario and the options for training in the trades. And stick around for a sweet story about a boost for the beekeeping sector. But we begin with how to stick to that back-to-school budget. Galit Solomon with the dollars and cents. It's that time of year when most of us parents begin shopping for back-to-school. And if we're not careful and properly budgeted for it, there's no question we can go a little too far with that spending. So I'm joined today by Stacey Yanchuk Oleksi, the Director of Education and Community Awareness at the Credit Counseling Society. Stacey, welcome to the feed. Thank you so much. So let's let's begin with a look first and foremost at how much parents tend to spend on average on back-to-school goods and products, including things like clothing, supplies, technology. What we're noticing is that people are spending on average around $500, but that really depends on, you know, how old the kids are, how many kids there are, and what their needs are for school. So that can be a little lower. It also can climb up, you know, into the higher, into the higher numbers. It does seem like a, a, a big number for the start of the school year, but I, I guess it's very much like maybe Christmas shopping, right? I mean, every year it just gets a little bit more uh, expensive or, you know, with cost of living and so on, I'm assuming uh, as well. But, uh, but that's the average number, isn't it? It is, and, yeah. and you're right, it's expensive. Now, you issued a, a release um, not too long ago, and it quoted a survey uh, that revealed that three in five parents are stressed out about back to school, um, and the top stressor tended to be school-related costs, which is what we're talking about. So what's the best way to navigate through these final weeks of summer and plan for the new year so that stress is kept at bay? I would say that the first thing that parents need to do is breathe. You know, we're all going to get through this, And it can be, you know, hard and chaotic, but if we breathe, you know, we can stay a little calmer. And then what I, you know, I think what we can do as parents is plan it out, actually be really organized. So create a big master list of everything that, you know, your child or children need to get. And then go through an inventory or do an inventory of what do they already have? You know, what clothes still fit and shoes? Mm -hmm. What can be, you know, given to younger siblings? What school supplies did they come home with, you know, back in June? And then with all of that, we can create the proper list. So we can cross up what we already have and create the proper list. And then, you know, depending on how old the kids are, you know, maybe you involve them in doing some research. You know, get them on their smartphones or their tablets or the computer and get them researching different prices or the best price. You know, it could be a challenge or a quest that you put the kids on. Mm -hmm. And then once you have, you know, the places you need to go and the best prices, then with that list, you go shopping. And, you know, the parents need, you know, parents need to decide whether they bring their kids with them um, to do that whole shopping excursion or they do it by themselves and get it done quickly. Get it done quickly and, of course, not get distracted, right, by other things because I know that that can be a problem for us. I actually have a six-year-old and I recently got some advice from a financial planner who suggested 
include the back to school shopping in your family budget if you have one. And, and I guess, you know, rolling back a little bit there, create a family annual budget that would then include things like Christmas, but also would include things like going back to school because obviously it's becoming uh, a much, much larger expense than what it used to be. Absolutely. You know, and we talk about, we talk about that when we talk about seasonal and irregular expenses. You know, see, uh, school is a seasonal expense, but it's a really expensive one. So, you know, if parents can calculate how much does it actually cost per child and then factor that into their budget. So what they can do is divide that number. So let's just, I'm making up easy numbers, but let's say it's $500. So divided by 24 or 26 paychecks, you get that amount and then you transfer that every payday without even thinking about it into a savings account so that when next August comes around, you've actually got the cash available mm, yeah. for Christmas. That's a great formula. Absolutely. Now, have you noticed any trends in back to school shopping or spending? There's probably more, uh, more being spent on technology these days, phones, things like that. There is. And definitely schools are wanting more um, technology, you know, for the students to have. So I think what parents need to do, though, is first of all, find out from the school, not necessarily the child, <laughs> because they can talk about what they want, but find out from the school what they actually need. And then once they know, you know, once parents know what the children actually need for electronics, then again, we can do some price, you know, comparisons. And we can also look at gently used electronics. Mm-hmm. A lot of people trade in their electronics or sell it for the next latest and greatest. So there's a lot of great technology out there that's been gently used. So parents can consider that as a way to reduce the price. Parents can also, you know, check with the schools to see if siblings can use the same device or do they need separate ones? Because if they can use the same device, then that saves some money as well. Of course. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Are there any ways that parents can price match school supplies so they don't break the bank and find the best savings? Absolutely. You know, there's always, you know, you can check out Craigslist, Kijiji, you can check out, there's a really great app called Flip, F-L-I-P-P. And what it does is that you put the postal code in and then it checks all the flyers in your area. So then you can compare prices, find the lowest one, and then make some decisions about whether you want to shop at a place that will price match where you can get even better savings. Right. Okay. Excellent. Now, how can parents educate their kids on important money principles when back to school shopping? So, you know, what lessons can be learned? Because obviously a big part of this is about education. And the earlier we teach our kids, the the quicker they will grasp the concept of budgeting and saving. So, so what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's a great opportunity. You know, you know, Every family needs to decide what works best for them. But if they can bring the kids shopping, I think even better. You know, and my recommendation would be, you know, first of all, make sure everybody has breakfast so that nobody's going shopping hangry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then once they get there, they've agreed to, you know, the rules, which is we shop only what's on the list. And we use, you know, proper tone and proper voice. We don't whine or beg or plead. And then, you know, I would say that, you know, assuming, you know, we accomplish the quest as a family, then what's our reward? You know, maybe it's homemade pizzas that night and a movie. Um, So we keep the kids engaged because there's so many lessons to teach, you know, needs versus wants, quantity versus quality. We can also talk about name brands versus not. So, you know, and, and depending on how old the kids are, we can even talk about taxes and how we need to include that 
we're budgeting for items. Mm-hmm. I like that you say that this is a good opportunity to, to teach and to learn because it is. It's so true. So really, the first lesson comes just before you start school, and that is in the, in, in the period of time when you're shopping for back to school. I, I really like that. Um, anything else you'd like to add in terms of uh, last-minute tips? Well, and something a parent can consider is to give each child, you know, their own school budget, you know, within, you know, parameters and some guidelines. But, you know, that also then teaches them, you know, do they want just one name brand or do they want, you know, a couple items that are not, you know, as brand labeled. Mm. Uh, So there's lots of things that parents can do. But I think if we involve our kids at the beginning, then they can be part of the decision. They can be part of the research and then part of the purchasing, even handing over cash if we shop with cash. Right. Which gives them a real experiential experience. well, experience, if you will, of back-to-school shopping and budgeting. And that's really interesting because I think a lot of us now shop with cards, right? Whether it's your debit card or your credit card, but go back to the good old cash, especially when you're teaching about the value of of money. Stacey is with the Credit Counseling Society. Thank you so much for your time today. This is the feed on 105.9 The Region. Over to Afwaba next and options for building your skills in the trades. Now, back to school season is coming up in a couple of weeks. And although most uh, have chosen where they want to go in terms of post-secondary students, there are still a couple of kids who are undecided and are not sure what next step to take. And uh, there is a great choice out there, but we don't really hear about it much. So we're trying to put a more spotlight on it. How about an apprenticeship? talking about the trades. Joining me to chat today um, in terms of great options after high school is Ian Howcroft, Chief Executive Officer of Skills Ontario. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be able to join you. Wonderful. Okay, so first, for the listeners that may not know, can you talk to me a bit about Skills Ontario? Well, Skills Ontario is actually uh, celebrating its 30th anniversary, and our raison d'etre, our purpose, is to promote skilled trades, apprenticeships, and technology careers to young people, and we've been doing that uh, for 30 years, uh, and we do that in a variety of ways, and we're trying to do uh, things a little more innovatively and create more experiential opportunities for kids to uh, try a trade, uh, understand better the technology opportunities, and uh, get uh, more engaged with the schools. We do a lot right now, but we're always looking for new ways to uh, make sure everybody has an, uh, a broad opportunity uh, bandwidth that they can look to uh, things that they might not have even considered. Awesome. Okay, so first let, uh, let me uh, say first congratulations on, of course, 30 years of continuing to do work across the province and uh, continuing to promote the trades and apprenticeships. Uh, maybe let's unpack that a little bit because we, we say it uh, as a one-off uh, because you and I, we understand it. For the listeners that may not know, for students that may not know, even for those who are looking for a career change, what exactly is a trade, what is an apprenticeship, and what type of careers do they cover? They cover a whole range of ideas. It's very broad. Ontario had about 150 designated trades, and I know they're making some changes to uh, what's, uh, what's a trade, what's compulsory, what's voluntary. But it covers everything from uh, electrician, plumber, uh, IT, uh, robotics, uh, technology careers, culinary services, uh, auto mechanics, uh, HVAC. Uh, there's a whole variety of opportunities out there. And what we're trying to do is make sure people understand how broad those opportunities are and what they can do to uh, get some experiential uh, opportunities to, to try them and understand them. 
Uh, right now, apropos, uh, we have about uh, 26 summer camps going on around uh, the province, and it gets kids the uh, opportunity to, to attend at a college or an industrial environment to uh, see uh, what they can do to, to build a car, to try culinary skills, to try auto painting, whole variety depending on where those uh, camps are being held. So it, it is very broad. Uh, we have a, an annual competition, and we have 70 different contests uh, that, uh, that kids and young people uh, are exposed to and can try, and uh, it's, uh, it, it's very, very broad, much broader than most people think. Okay, all right. So that's a great um, first beginning in terms of understanding what the trades are all about. I know sometimes when people mention trades, they automatically think construction worker, but that's not necessarily the case. There are a ton of different careers that's under that term of an umbrella, and as you mentioned, it's quite broad. Um, leading me to my next point, that there was a, a report that came out earlier this year um, stating that there's going to be a shortage of workers in the next couple of years or, or so in the trade industry. Is it in a particular field? Um, and if so, can you explain why that shortage is coming? Well, there, there's several reasons, one being uh, demographics. We're an aging workforce, and there's more people uh, leaving the workforce than there are entering it. And because I think we still have a stigma uh, around those skilled trades, uh, there's not enough young people considering going into the skilled trades. And uh, what we're trying to do also is make it uh, uh, more easily understandable for, for young people as to what routes they have to go on. How do you become an apprentice? How do you find uh, a sponsor? How do you find an employer? And what do we need to do to help uh, uh, young people consider that career? And then how, how do we help them? find that uh, opportunity to move forward with. So there, there's, uh, those are the reasons, uh, some of the reasons as to why we're going to experience more of a shortfall than we have in the past. And uh, I think one of the things that we've uh, come to realize, and one of our target audiences is parents. I think many parents don't understand what those opportunities are, and uh, they uh, are encouraging their kids perhaps to pursue an academic career, not understanding or being aware of what those career opportunities are in the skilled trades and technology careers. Uh, you mentioned construction, and there's huge opportunities in construction, you know, in carpentry and drywall uh, and uh, landscape architecture. You know, there's, there's an enormous amount. So I would encourage people to check our website out to see what some of those opportunities are and work with us and our partners to try and help kids uh, realize their, their full potential. Uh, our, our goal is to make sure uh, young people and parents and businesses understand what those opportunities are and how we can help facilitate uh, economic uh, and career success. I love that you just pointed it out there that um, there let's let's help lift the stigma because let's face it, working in the trades can be just as successful and rewarding as maybe going into academia. And maybe some may find that they might be better suited for the trades rather than academia. But because academia is so uh, pushed um, heavily uh, that they don't necessarily con consider the latter in, or in different options. So if you could maybe just give uh, me a couple of reasons as to the benefits of going into a apprenticeship after high school or even making a career change in going into the trades, um, just helping maybe the youth and maybe some parents know um, what are some of the rewarding um, factors into going into apprenticeships? Well, one, you, you can find a, a career path and a job that you really enjoy, that you have an affinity towards. Uh, 
uh, apprenticeships. It's uh, earn while you uh, learn. So you're actually uh, earning and learning at the same time. Uh, you don't have to go through school and pay for everything up front. Uh, with, with an apprenticeship, you're, you're getting paid to uh, continue your, uh, your, your career path. So I think those are things that people don't necessarily think of. Uh, in Ontario, the average age of someone starting an apprenticeship is 28 years old. So what we're trying to do is make sure people are aware of the opportunities uh, at a much earlier age so that uh, you can start an apprenticeship at 19 or 20 and be out working full-time at, your, at the age of 22. And these aren't uh, low-paying jobs. Uh, some of them are extremely high-paying, six-figure jobs that, uh, that are much in demand, uh, millwrights and boilermakers, uh, welders. Uh, these are uh, careers that can, can last a lifetime, and it also uh, opens other doors. Some go in to become uh, an electrician, and they decide they have an entrepreneurial spirit, so they can still do that, but they hire other people to work for them and open a business and, and expand to do other things. So it, it, it is a, a door to uh, giving you a, a broad uh, career opportunity in the future. You can continue to have a fulfilling, satisfying job as an electrician, but if you want to do other things, the door is open for you to do that as well. I also heard that um, uh, certain companies that have uh, workers or employees that are in the trades and they either want to upgrade or um, maybe they want to learn a new skill, that uh, those companies would be willing to also pay for their education if they go back into some sort of apprenticeship program. Is that true? Is that true? And if you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, there are, are many, many companies will uh, support an employee upgrade their skills or uh, learn new skills. It helps that company increase its productivity. Uh, they're supporting their uh, their employees, and the employees that are being supported this way often feel that they have an obligation and uh, and a stronger commitment to to that employer. Uh, you have to find out which employers are, are are doing that, but it is something that that, that works for for many individuals and, and many companies. Where can residents go then, and students, parents, whoever you may be, if you, from young to old, for more information and, of course, resources if they want to look into get, getting into an apprenticeship? Well, I, I think a good place to start is, uh, is our website, uh, www.skillsontario.com. Go there, and uh, it, it will give you some basic information as to what we do, how we promote skilled trades, and there will be links to other organizations that can help. The, uh, the Ministry of Training Colleges, uh, Ministry of Training College Universities, has uh, information as does the Ministry of Education. So there's a wealth of information available on uh, government websites about apprenticeship and the pre-apprenticeship programs that are uh, being offered. The colleges uh, are, are very involved in apprenticeship training and pre-apprenticeship. So there's a lot of sources out there. Uh, sometimes it may seem overwhelming, and there's too many sources of information. And what we want to do is see that streamlined so that there's one easy route to find the information that you need to help you move yourself forward uh, in the career areas that you've uh, identified as uh, being of most interest. But I would start with, uh, with, with Skills Ontario's website. Perfect. All right, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on this. I hope people really take advantage and uh, really listened in on all of the great things that our uh, Skills Ontario is providing right now in terms of workshops um, to the different resources that are available. And definitely take a look into apprenticeships. You might not realize that maybe the most rewarding career is, is closer than you think. Ian, thank you so much.
Joining us on the feed is Mary Ng, Federal Minister of Small Business and Export Promotion, and she's also the MP from right here in York Region from Markham Thornhill. Minister Ng, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's so great to listen, uh, to talk to you, Tina, and uh, to your listeners. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the announcement you made about the first ever Women Entrepreneurship Strategy? What exactly is that? I'm really thrilled to be talking about this. Maybe I'll just take a second and step back and talk about um, the fact that federally we have a women's entrepreneurship strategy. It's the first ever of its kind, and it's a $2 billion investment across the country so that we can double the number of female entrepreneurs by 2025. That's the mandate the Prime Minister has given to me. And why are we doing this? We're doing this because only 16% of our Canadian small and medium-sized businesses today are women-owned or women-led, despite the fact that 99% of all our businesses are SMEs. So what we wanted to do was ensure that women entrepreneurs get a bit of a leg up so that they can also contribute uh, to the Canadian economy. Well, I obviously think that's a great idea. Uh, Now, part of those (laughs) funds went to your riding. Can you tell us how Markham's Venture Lab will benefit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Markham's Venture Lab received uh, just a little over $1.7 million, and it really is to support the work that Venture Lab is doing because, um, you know, just about a month ago, I made a different announcement at Venture Lab, and there it was a $5 million investment for what they call the Hardware Capitalist Initiative. And what is that? It's a state-of-the-art incubator that is going to help create hardware technology companies. Now, if you listen to me or Mayor or many of us who represent Markham, it is the high-tech capital. York Region has some of the most innovative technology companies here, and, um, and what we are doing is we are supporting the growth of these companies, and the growth of these companies led by female entrepreneurs. So the announcement I made yesterday at Venture Lab is really to support their efforts so that they are developing um, materials, support, training um, tools to help our female tech founders get the tools that they need, the technologies that they need, so that they can grow their companies, start and grow their companies right here in Markham and in York Region. So I don't want to drill down too deeply, but how do women-owned or led businesses then access the fund? They will access it uh, directly through Venture Lab. Venture Lab is creating, um, uh, you know, a um, a support program, if you will, or or a well, maybe what we a better way to call it is a catalyst initiative. They are there to support female founders in the tech space so that they can get access to whether it is capital that we know is a barrier to female entrepreneurs, or they're going to help them connect the dots or navigate through how they might be able to get access to the supply chain of customers to grow their business or to start their business. The other thing that we are hearing from female entrepreneurs is that they don't have the business networks access to them in the same way as their male counterparts. So this is also really exciting because in the funding that Venture Lab is getting, they are going to create a pool of senior executives. And these are senior business people, not only, not women, of course women, senior business people, but also men as well, who are going to provide strategic mentorship to these female founders who are looking to grow their business so that as they grow their business, as they are on their entrepreneurial journey, they have that kind of mentorship from others who are successful, who can give them sort of that guiding hand as they 
um, as they work in their business. Now, Minister, I think you touched on this a little bit already, but I'd like to go back to this point. Companies are reporting that they're, you know, highly committed to gender diversity, but the commitment has not really translated into meaningful progress. How do we change that? This is, uh, this is a start. Um, you know, as I said, it's a $2 billion investment strategy to double the number of female entrepreneurs in our country. But here's the return on investment. Studies like that by the McKinsey Global Institute will tell us that we can add up to $150 billion to the Canadian economy. $150 billion by 2026. The Prime Minister has given me the mandate to double the number of female entrepreneurs by 2025. So to support this leadership, this capability that we are investing in so that we can add more female entrepreneurs to the Canadian economy is going to change, I think, those numbers. Um, right now, as I said, only 16% of our, of our SMEs are female-owned or female-led, and I think we could do a way better job, particularly in light of studies that tell us that we can add such contribution to the Canadian economy. And what it, I mean, you know, what does growing the economy really mean? It means creating jobs. It means uh, great jobs right here in York Region. And it means that Canadian companies can grow and scale, and they're not only going to grow domestically. I mean, these are innovative technology companies. They're going to grow, and they're going to grow into the global marketplace, which is what we'd like to see. Now, what's then your message to young women today, perhaps those in high school or in post-secondary right now? What choices or decisions should they be making, and what's your advice to them? Well, I would say that uh, I say this to the women who I uh, meet with all the time, the women entrepreneurs, Please take your place in the national economy because you belong there. I think to see it um, is important. So for young women to see it is to be it, to see female leadership, to see women entrepreneurs who are paving the way, who are being successful so that we don't have, you know, so that we don't have conversations like this one. Now, here's the other thing that we're doing. Because we are looking forward to the jobs of the future, we are helping one million young people with an emphasis on girls to give them coding skills. This is to give them that love for coding, love for the STEM field, so that they can, as they choose their curricular choices, as they get into post-secondary, that there, is, that there are options available to them in, uh, you know, in the technology field where perhaps we didn't put as much of a focus um, in the past. Now, Minister, before we wrap things up, if our listeners want more information about this strategy, where can they get it? They can get in touch with me at, uh, you know, at my department. So it's uh, maryingcanada.ca, or they can get in touch with my, uh, my local office as the Member of Parliament from Arkham Thornhill at mary.ng at parl.gc.ca, and we're really happy to give uh, your listeners or anyone who's looking for information more information about this program. But I would also plug one thing, the Canada Business app. This is an easy-to-use app that is recently created because I was listening to the 5,000 and some odd entrepreneurs and small businesses across the country who tell me, listen, how do we understand what it is that the government is doing and what resources and what kind of um, you know work is there to support my efforts as a small business or as an entrepreneur? So the Canada Business app, you can download it on Google Play, you can download it on on uh, on your iPhone on uh, on the App Store, and that will give you information to a lot well, a lot of information to what is there available to our entrepreneurs and our 
business owners across the country. Well, thank you for sharing that information, Minister Ng. And I have to ask you, there is a federal election on the horizon. Do you plan to run again in yes, October? I absolutely do. I've been out uh, talking to constituents in Mark and Thornhill, knocking on doors, making phone calls, and it is wonderful. I am so pleased to be able to listen to Canadians, to talk to them about the progress the government has made, you know, in the area of the economy, which I know is important to the people of Markham, Thornhill, and York region. You know, over a million jobs have been created. You know, we are experiencing uh, the lowest unemployment that we have in 40 years. Families have uh, greater affordability today through, you know, through programs like the Canada Child Benefit. Overall, um, I'm looking forward to continuing to listen to and, uh, and to talk to the people of Markham Thornhill, and I hope that they will uh, return me with uh, a mandate to continue to represent them, because I would be honored to. Well, Minister Ng, I'm sure we'll connect again before the fall election. Thank you for joining us on the feed. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com for a replay. Our next story takes us to the world of dance. Sydney Bourguignon hits the stage. From August 20 to 29, 64 young dancers, including 19 Canadians, will be competing for the gold medal at the Royal Academy of Dance's Genet International Ballet Competition. Four of York Region's very own will be competing this year. Joining us today on the feed is Clark McIntosh, who is the National Director of the Royal Academy of Dance in Canada. Thank you for joining us today, Clark. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sydney. Uh, great to be here. So if you can just start by telling me, what is this competition? Well, uh, the Genet International Ballet Competition is the flagship event of the Royal Academy of Dance, and it's one of the world's most prestigious and developmental opportunities for aspiring dancers. First, participants must meet strict entrance qualifications, achieving the highest standing in the top examination level of the Academy, which ensures an elite experience is in store for all of the candidates, then they receive a unique opportunity to work with renowned choreographers and coaches for five days before performing at the semifinals. So even before the competition starts, it's a very constructive and developmental event. In the coaching, they work on three different routines, a 19th or 20th century ballet variation, a piece that they or a peer has choreographed for them, the dancer's own, and a piece created by the commissioned choreographer for that year. Then at the semifinals, they are also judged on their participation in a live ballet class, testing their overall technical preparation without the benefit of rehearsal. Should I go on? I can talk about the final, too. If I'm sure you can go on and on about the competition. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, I mean, at that point, a select few are chosen by our judges to go on to the final, where they present their 19th or 20th century variation, their dancer zone, and the commissioned choreography, on the main stage at the Four Seasons Centre for the Performing Arts, home at the National Ballet of Canada and the Canadian Opera Company. Gold, silver, and bronze medals are awarded, though the gold medal is at the discretion of the judges. Um, the competition does identify winners, but it's not that kind of a competition. There is a minimum ex expected professional caliber to be demonstrated before the judges will award a gold medal. And so with a big competition like this, what kind of preparation goes into preparing for it? I'm sure you guys are in crunch time seeing that it's just around the corner. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, there's, there's two answers to that, too, Sydney. Um, 
the dancers themselves have put in literally uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of training. Uh, it really does bring to mind the 10,000 hours required to master a craft. And all of the uh, dancers who will be competing in this competition, who have qualified to compete in this competition, are on the cusp of their professional careers. So these young dancers are highly accomplished. From an administrative perspective, it's just an enormous event with, um, with uh, 10 days of activities, coordinating faculty members from all over the world, judges traveling in from uh, different respected ballet companies, uh, family and friends who are traveling internationally because we have competitors coming, coming in from multiple countries. So it's a year-long activity to prepare uh, and pull off the Genet. And even then, it's a little bit chaotic in the final moments. But that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of the fun of, of hosting such a fantastic event. Exactly. There's always that behind-the-scene work that no one ever sees, but it takes a lot to get there and, and make the competition a really fun and exciting event. Yeah, well, we always hope that the audience can't really tell when uh, when things don't go exactly uh, to script, but uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly part of the fun of it, a live event and a real competition. Exactly. The show must go on. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> and I noticed that the last time this competition was on Canadian soil was in 2008. Can you tell me, as the director of the Royal Academy of Dance in Canada, what this means to you and what does it mean to Canadian dancers? Oh well, this is a this is a very prestigious event, uh, Sydney, and it is expensive for these young dancers to have the opportunity to participate. We subsidize every single entrant by almost five thousand dollars per entrant wow. in order to make this event possible for them. And the Royal Academy of Dance is very proud of of our efforts to be able to provide this developmental opportunity for them. However, it's still very expensive for family to travel, for a teacher to travel perhaps with their student when the competition is held in different cities around the world. And so having it here on home soil, it's still not an inexpensive enterprise for dancers to consider, but we have a record number of participants in the competition from Canada. And uh, absolutely, this is due to the fact that being on home soil it is just a little closer and a little more affordable for people to be able to get here. That's amazing. And to my understanding, the dancers that are participating in this competition have to be following the Royal Academy of Dance syllabus. Uh, am I correct in saying that? And what would that entail? What is the RAD syllabus? Well, in fact, the syllabus is probably how um, the Royal Academy of Dance is best known. At our core, we are a teacher training and licensing organization. Um, we are the largest um, classical ballet dance education and training organization in the world. But through that, we do provide uh, an assessment system for our teachers to use once they're licensed uh, to train their students and have specific objectives and goals to be working on through the course of a year's or two years' worth of study. So um, the syllabus defines a series of expected outcomes, so skills and artistry that dancers are expected to show at reasonable measurement points 
in their development path, but we do not provide prescribed ways in which teachers and students are to learn and achieve those expected outcomes. And so there really is a craft in knowing how to work with different students who develop in different ways and different paths uh, for teachers to be able to customize a training program for them that does still help them develop the vocabulary and technique that's expected of today's professional dancers. Exactly. And for the dancers who will be competing in this competition, what advice do you have for them? Oh, uh, I, I think it comes naturally, but my advice is almost always to really relax and enjoy the overall experience. The single most important thing is to do your best, to, to really focus and try. But, uh, Sydney, this almost comes naturally because of the uniqueness of this event. For most of these dancers entering this competition, for a long time, they've been the best dancer in their studio. They've been the best dancer maybe even in their town or province or state. And for the first time, they are going to be coming together with a group of dancers who are of similar accomplishment and mindset to have achieved this very high level. And that transforms the experience of working with world-class coaches uh, as they try to refine and improve the presentation and artistry and technique even more. So being filled with a room full of other people who are just as good or maybe even better at some things makes it an incredibly positive and developmental experience. And so those five days in advance of the competition itself really define the Genet. And it's why we refer to it as as the friendly competition, because it's not it's not about a more traditional competitive winner take all type attitude. I like to think of it as as the positive and constructive competition. Well I'm sure it'll be a competition that they won't forget from the sounds of it. Oh yeah, no, they make friends that they will stay in touch with for years and years and years. Exactly. It'll be so much fun. Well, thank you so much, Clark, for joining us on the feed. It was a pleasure. If listeners wanted to go out to the competition or purchase tickets, where can they go? Well, all kinds of information is available on our website. So that's uh, www.royalacademyofdance.org. And uh, you would just search for the Jeunet and it will be able to provide you with all of the information you need at that point. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on and talking to us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sydney. No problem, and I wish all the dancers the best of luck. Absolutely. Now we welcome 16-year-old Ivy Lynn, who's competing in this year's competition. She's here to tell us all about how she's gearing up for the big show. Thank you for joining us today, Ivy. Hi, thank you. So why don't we start from the beginning? When did you start dancing, and where did you train? Okay, so I started dancing when I was six years old, and I trained at the School of Toronto City Ballet. So what type of training have you done to get where you are today? I would take classes every day, and I would take solo classes with my teacher. And, like, to make everything perfect, you have to practice, and practice makes perfect. And when you're stepping out on the stage and the music begins to play, what are you feeling? Are you having nerves? Are you excited? What is it? When the music starts playing, of course, I'm nervous. But then I think about the amount of practice I put into into my dance. And then 
I like pretend like it's my own studio and I try to make every move like how I would do in my studio as like best as I can. But of course I'm nervous, but I try my best to not be. So the big competition though is just around the corner. How are you feeling mm-hmm. and what do you hope to achieve out of this great experience? I'm like really nervous but excited at the same time because I have been wanting to go to this competition since I heard about it in like 2015 when one of uh, a girl from my ballet studio was able to go to one in London and like being able to compete in this in this competition is already an achievement of mine. I hope that competing in Jenny will help me to expand my knowledge in the ballet world as I will be able to meet many other candidates from many other different countries. And I also hope to learn more than I already know. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you coming on to talk to us. Thank you so much. It was our pleasure. Again, if listeners wanted to find out more information about the competition or purchase tickets, they can go to the Royal Academy of Dance.org. And we wish all the dancers the best of luck. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region and beyond. Our next story is all about helping the province's beekeepers and improving the health of honeybees. Jim Lang with the details. For a lot of people who don't realize that agriculture is a huge part of the industry and economy of the province of Ontario, and a little-known fact is bees and beekeeping plays a crucial role in it. To talk more about the Ontario government's involvement in the in the future beekeeping and the health of bees in the province, thrilled to be speaking with the Ontario Minister of Agriculture and the MPP for Oxford, Ernie Hardiman. Ernie, how are you? I'm very good, Jim, uh, and thank you very much for calling. Oh, no problem. Uh, the government's decided to invest up to $500,000 to help beekeepers make improvements and manage the pests. And I know, um, including Honey Nut Cheerios and other people, have talked about saving the bees. Why are the bees in danger in Ontario? Why do we need to help them? Well, what we're having problems with, uh, Jim, is the, um, is the overwinter, um, what should we say, the hibernation of the bees overwinter and the winter loss. Um, it, um, it, last year... Um, two years ago, uh, we lost um, over 40% of the hives uh, uh, through through um, uh, through the winter. And what we want to do is find out uh, ways, working together with the uh, the beekeeper, finding ways to to reduce that amount. Uh, last winter, it was down to 23%. And so, but uh, we. Um, uh, we want to make sure that it, that, that it goes even lower. And I think, as you mentioned to start off, I think it's so important to recognize the importance of the bee and the honey industry in, in our agriculture community. It isn't just the $30 million we uh, get for the honey that's uh, generated, but they, um, the bees pollinate 80% of the field crops that, uh, that need pollination. And, and of course, that's, um, uh, all our crops depend on that. So that's why we, we want to have a, a, um, a healthy, thriving bee industry in the province. And Ernie, as a city boy, I have to admit, I always thought I just associated bees with my wife's flower garden. I didn't realize how crucial it was to to the health of crops in the grounds in the province. 
Well, exactly. That, that I think uh, there's a lot of people feel that way. The uh, the bees are are, are very much uh, needed for for pollination, and in fact, they uh, um, they're moved around the province um, to different uh, to different places for that pollination. Because uh, to get the the type of crops we have today, uh, we need that uh, we need that service. And again, we we can't afford to. Uh, uh, these uh, beekeepers can't afford to lose um, through the winter, lose so many uh, so many bees. And of course, um, um, the original bee wasn't uh, from this area, so they're not used to the to the winter weather. Uh, they survive it all right, but there are things that uh, that cause bee health to deteriorate to the point where uh, a lot of them don't survive the winter cold. Speaking with Ernie Hardiman, the Ontario Minister of Agriculture on the feed. And Ernie, I guess as a homeowner, and for a lot of people listening right now, think, geez, I'd like to do something to help bees. Are there certain plants and flowers we could plant in our garden to help the bee population? Well, I, uh, I'm not one that's uh, in, in the beekeeping uh, industry, <laughs> but uh, any, any, any flower that... Uh, uh, any plant that's flowering is good for bees. Now you can have bees uh, uh, in in the flower beds. You can have them uh, uh, out in the wild, and they uh, they go around and uh, uh, any plant that has uh, has a flowering and nectar in it that um, uh, that bees can can collect. They do collect, and and so um, I think um, uh, the industry itself has a lot of. Um, um, impact on how how well it works they have to find the right places to put their hives and uh, uh, they some of the uh, uh, the place where we made the announcement yesterday the individual has uh, um, over 800 hives and he has some of them uh, put in places that he has to travel an hour from from his home to hmm. uh, to get to them to look after those like it's it's a big industry uh, but we have to make sure that um, we understand uh, what we have to do for those uh, for those bees during the during the summertime and going into the fall to make sure that uh, we do everything we can that they survive the winter cold. And Ernie, as you know, as a parent, we have teenagers who are very involved in the environment, as you can imagine. And you know, sometimes we forget as a society, climate change, the environment is not just the temperature, but it's the cycle of life with bees and plants and vegetables and how we, you know, treat the earth and the farmers. Well, I, I think that's that's true, but I, but I think um, one of the things that we, we in the past we haven't done very well is that uh, to to study to make sure that the decisions we make about how we um, deal with the bee uh, the bee sector, but the 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 um, environmental sector uh, in general in agriculture is to make sure that we understand the science as um, the problems that we have that we have scientific. Um, uh, information that we can that we can deal with those problems, and uh, I think, um, and that's that's not only just for for the individual beehives, but that's uh, in the area. Uh, some areas are better suited for bee colonies than uh, than others, and uh, beekeepers need to know uh, what to be looking for and how they best can treat the uh, the hives to make sure that they survive the winter. Yeah, it's fascinating because I know at the, all the farmers markets in and around here in York Region, one of the go-to stands is the the honey, the the pure honey. For a parent, you're thinking, I can't think of anything more healthy for my kids to give them honey out of a hive. Well, exactly. That's uh, and obviously there's there's a, a lot of that going on, and it, it's uh, uh, it's it's a part uh, of the um, uh, of the bee industry. But from 
from uh, from the ministry's point of view, the the impact of our bee population has a much greater impact on the actual uh, pollinating of crops than we do on the value of the honey. At the same time, uh, I sure like buying some of that good honey uh, that is being produced. It's it's great to see that the government's taking an active role in saving the bee population. Because uh, I mean, I'm just been educated by you, Ernie, and I think a lot of people listening just how important it is to you know the asparagus or apples or whatever you buy your local fruit and vegetable stand in the province wouldn't happen without the bees. No, exactly. We need uh, we need bees that uh, that have to pollinate the crops, and that's not just in not uh, not so much in the vegetables as it is in the in the, in the the grains that are grown and uh, you know the, the beans that are out in the field. And this is a it's a big issue for a lot of our, our agriculture community, and so uh, that's why we think it's so important. We have a we have had in the past and still do a lot of uh, support programs that that apply to the rest of agriculture that apply to the bees too. This program we announced. To the, uh, uh, now is strictly it, it's focused on what we can do to help the beef uh, the beef industry. So the agriculture uh, uh, the agriculture program, agriculture the, the Canada mm-hmm. Canadian Agriculture Partnership uh, is the proper title for it. Uh, we put a, an intake in it that applies strictly to the to the bee uh, to the bee producers who can apply for 50% funding based on doing things that uh, that help. Uh, the health of their bees, uh, not only uh, uh, through the winter, but uh, during the summertime too. So uh, there's there's more more than man-made uh, uh, problems such as as pesticides. There's a lot of other health problems and so forth that we need to address to make sure that uh, we're getting the best possible uh, chance of survival. And to wrap up, Ernie, how many cycles, winter, spring cycles, will it take before? The agricultural industry in the province and the provincial government will have a sense that this is helping the beekeepers in the province. Well, I think I think every um, every time we find something that they can do to reduce the amount of mites or that that reduces the amount of uh, of, of stress on bees in this cycle, we will notice that next year and, and next spring. And as I mentioned, um, in two years, one year we had forty over forty percent. Uh, uh, non-survival rate over the winter uh, and the next year with the things that we had done already um, last year well it would be the, a year ago yeah what we had a 23 so we've had we've had a almost half improvement in that one year that's uh, what we need to make sure we find out was that something we did or was it the the weather that wasn't as uh, as as adverse for the bees and so we need to understand how we can make that make those changes successful we will notice the changes year by year and we want to make sure that everything we're doing each year improves it and uh, when we have things that make it go the other way then we want to make sure we know that too Good stuff. You are the Ontario Minister of Agriculture, Ernie Hardiman, the MPP for Oxford. I really appreciate your time in educating us on the importance of bees to the uh, crop industry in the province. Thank you so much, Ernie. Well, thank you very much for calling. Take care. Yeah, bye now. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.